Welcome to Raising the Bar, the one and only podcast that centers the lives and experiences of women of color while discussing legal issues and policies. We aim to inform, educate, and provide concrete tools to empower, expand, and raise the bar for our communities and ourselves. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, y'all. <laughs> I am Iman Freeman, your host of Raising the Bar, a podcast where we examine current legal issues and policies and the impact on women of color. Today's episode is a good one. Uh, we are talking about gentrification. As a Harlem native, I was born and raised in Harlem, New York. This is a special, especially personal for me. Um, my neighborhood, my hometown is not the same. And I've seen some great things and I've seen some not so great things. And so we're actually going to discuss a case out of D.C. There are a couple of D.C. residents and an organization that's suing the district for gentrification, for the policies that create gentrification. So definitely stay tuned. I think it's going to be a great episode. I actually have my first guest today, very important person to me. Um, I'll, re- I'll reveal the identity of this person during that segment. Um, but yeah, today's episode, I think, is going to be wonderful. If you didn't have a chance to listen to the first episode, in the first episode, we talked about a recently released Supreme Court decision, um, a, the Use It or Lose It voter purge case out of Ohio. Please go back, go to our website, www.rtbpodcast.com to listen to it. I think it's a very timely discussion, especially in 2018. We have very important midterm elections coming up. And I think we just definitely need to be aware of some of the things that are happening to uh, oppress voter suppression, um, to suppress the vote of many in our community. Um, during very important times, I think we all need to be aware. So sit back, relax. No, I haven't figured out where that song is from, but I will. Sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's affirmation is from a website that I came across when I was searching for affirmations. It's from Happy Black Woman. Um, happyblackwoman.com and it's by a woman named Rosetta Thurman and she has this website has a lot of great resources so I urge you all to check it out but the affirmation is I refuse to allow myself to be overcommitted I say no quickly and easily I protect my me time because I deserve it I'm not sure when no became this big, bad word in which, you know, especially women and especially women who oftentimes carry the burden of our entire families, how no became this bad word that we didn't want to use. I'm here to tell you and myself that saying no sometimes just means that we're saying yes to ourselves. I'm a mother. I'm a working woman. I play many different roles in many different you know, lives of my family members and my friends, and I'm learning to say no now. And I think because I'm just starting, it does create a little angst for me, but I, it's getting easier and I'm enjoying it. So I urge you all to say no to others and say yes to yourself. 
Um, I, I urge you to say it quickly and easily. <laughs> Let me know how that goes. Um, yeah, so that's today's affirmation, and I hope you enjoyed it. Up next, we will discuss the case, and um, then we'll discuss. We'll have the discussion. So just the quick facts of the case before we begin. Uh, The suit was actually filed on April 14th in the U.S. District Court for D.C. And the suit alleged that the city implemented policies to attract the creative class, and we'll talk about that, to the detriment of lifelong D.C. residents. I do want to uplift the three black women um, who are actually named in their suit, and they're the plaintiffs, in addition to a local grassroots organization. But the three plaintiffs, um, three black women who say they're feel they're fearful of getting pushed out of the city due to redevelopment. And their names, you have Paulette Matthews, a 52-year-old black woman that lives in Berry Farm for 20 years. And Berry Farm is a, a housing project here in D.C., which has very important um, historical roots, which we'll talk about. Uh, Miss Matthews wants to stay in Berry Farms and does not want to move. Uh, and she lives in subsidized housing and can't afford the market rate. And I think that's a story that you see a lot. Um, I know you see it in D.C. and you definitely see it in New York and Oakland and San Francisco in that area, too. And then you have Miss Ball. Um, I think it's Shanna Feeney or Sh- I'm, I'm so sorry. I hate when people butcher my name. So I'm just going to say Miss Ball. Um, she lives in Union Market. She currently cares for her elderly uncle who has lived in his home for over 45 years. His home is paid off. Um, and Miss Ball said she doesn't like the new feel for her neighborhood. And she feels like her community has been replaced definitely get that feeling. And you have Miss Greta Fuller. Um, she lives in the historic Anacostia area. Uh, she is also an ANC commissioner here in DC. Uh, she's an entrepreneur, but her business is not considered a creative business. Uh, she was integral in delaying another development until the center um, until that center actually presented more information. And this is something that we're going to talk about in Raising the Bar on um, ways in which we can fight back gentrification. Um, she is understandably, Ms. Greta is understandably critical of D.C.'s zoning process. We really definitely want to make sure we pay attention to a lot of the zoning ordinances and any city's um, fight to change zoning ordinance, or, ordinances. That word is giving me trouble. Uh, we definitely want to make sure we're aware of those. Um, she's not opposed to development. So this is Ms. Fuller. She's not opposed to development, but believes it should be thoughtful, planned, and appropriate for the community. So be, even before we begin, I definitely want to uplift, uplift, uplift these three women. I admire their courage for fighting for what's right um, and... While I'm not sure that the law, the way it's written now, just the way that, you know, tort law and the limits of the law, I don't know if this case will prevail, but I'm just proud and and that they did this in the first place. Uh, And the defendants in this case is the Housing Authority, the Office of Planning, Zoning Commission, the Deputy Mayor for Economic Development, the current Mayor Bowser, Bowser, and former Mayors Fenty and Gray. So, but it's basically D.C. government. <laughs> and there's also, in addition to the three women, there's also an organization called CARE. And that, that organization is also suing as well. 
So the plaintiffs are seeking $1 billion in damages. And, you know, they basically say as Berry Farm residents are dislocated and displaced, it tears apart the, it tears apart the social fab- fabric of communities. And we see that, you know, if, if you are, if you've been born and raised in a gentrified area and it's, it's more than just seeing new buildings. It's, it's, it's more than that. There's a cultural aspect. And, you know, I, doing this research, this is happening to Chinatowns across this country where they're no longer, you know, a, a huge Asian population. You may still have buildings with Chinese written, Chinese logos, right? But the culture is, is being erased. So the policies in question... Now, the plaintiffs state or allege that the, um, the policies in, qu- in question discriminate based on age and income and have a disparate impact on the city's black communities. During the discussion piece, I'm going to talk about disparate impact and also about the limits to di- discrimination law, because there are limits. And, and when I was reading this, I just thought, you know, our law is not designed, our legal jurispr- jurisprudence is not designed to... Um, remedy this. And that's a problem. Uh, it really, really is. But let me get through the facts of the case, right? So the, the two policies in question that are mentioned in the suit is former Mayor Fenty's creative action agenda and former Mayor Gray's creative economy agenda. And the plaintiffs allege as a result of these policies, D.C.'s low to middle income class have been pushed out of D.C., um, they also say former Mayor Fenty's administration set out be creating an environment to attract these this creative class, a certain type of worker, and that the two administrations since have kept it going. And in the filing, they actually start from back in like 2006, and they mention all of the public, you know, moves that you know the mayors made or the mayor mayoral administrations made. Um, that outlined the steps that the city took to make D.C. a world-class city. And one of the people that are mentioned in this filing is Richard Florida. Uh, Richard Florida is a a central figure to a a lot of the gentrification that we see across this country. Um, He created the idea of the creative class. And most of the policies that cities are using to implement and to develop areas are based on his work. Um, and also, the plaintiffs allege that the D.C. the DC utilized Florida's theories to make D.C. neighborhoods vibrant, rejuvenated, and places where people want to live. So what is the creative class? What kind of worker? And I think in the, the filing I read that the creative class, that if a city brings in this creative class, then they will, you know, revitalize their economy. Their creative class is a specific kind of worker, young and working in tech, science, art, and journalism. And the key to a successful city economy lies in the hands of these workers. That's from Richard Florida and some of his work. And the creative class have particular particular ideas about where and how they want to live they prefer they prefer indigenous street level culture i don't know what that is anyway uh, (laughs) the plan to become a world-class city um and dc's plan to become a world-class city was a far-reaching plan that required new agencies new tax land use and zoning policies 
And so this is all within the filing. For a business to be a creative business, the business must either produce innovative goods or services or use innovative processes to produce goods and services. The word innovative is extremely subjective. So, yeah, whatever. Uh, So in response to the lawsuit, the city filed a a response, um, a motion to dismiss on June 25th. The city said that the plaintiff lacked a standing to sue and failed to raise a claim upon which relief could be granted and that the that the plaintiff did not plausibly allege intentional discrimination. And we're going to talk about that intentional discrimination and that the complaint raised political questions that was more appropriate for the for the elected official officials to address as opposed to the courts to address. And so the court has not ruled as of today, which is July 27th. The court has not ruled on the city's motion to dismiss. But those are the facts of the case. And we will discuss a lot of the legal uh, things that we talked about because I think it would help you understand why I believe that there's limits to the law, to, limits to the law, especially in this area, and why you know unfortunately I don't think that this will work out for the plaintiffs. But I, listen, I'm keeping hope alive because something needs to give. So up next we will have our discussion, our interview, and most importantly we'll talk about ways to raise the bar. So before I begin the discussion, I just want to put out a disclaimer. I know a lot of people will say, well, gentrification or development of, you know, cities that have been neglected is good. And, you know, you know, these cities have been divested. And so it's good that they're seeing this development. Let me say something real quick before we even begin. I acknowledge that the impact of gentrification can be subjective. If you like it, if you think that new development is good, um, this episode is just not for you. So stop. I hope you subscribed. You'll get a notice when episode three comes out, but this is not for you. Um, there will always be people that benefit from gentrification and there will always be people that are negatively impacted. This episode is for people that are negatively impacted by gentrification, people that are fighting to keep their homes and their apartments, fighting nasty ass landlords who could care less, you know, because there are people that are willing to pay triple the amount of rent they've paid. This episode is for you. There is a much needed housing. Well, let me say this. There's always been a housing justice movement in this country and gentrification and displacement you know, a one or one of the things in which, you know, this housing justice movement is fighting to combat. You know, this is a national issue. You know, we talked about a case in D.C. I'm going to talk about Harlem, but this is a nationwide issue. It's happening all over this country. Gentrification is tearing apart families for the sake of a shorter commute for somebody else. You know, in the, in the care filing, they said it best. This type of removal and relocation is cyclical in, in the district's black communities. Any distress or, morbid, or, morbid, or morbidity in the black community today is just as likely the result of 150 years of government policy executing the removal, dispersal, and displacement of black people in order to replace them for, for, with whites. Since, since the time of slavery... 
the district's black population and neighbors were were really given a chance to gain steady footing, grow synergistically, and build successful momentum for extended period of time before disruption. You know what I mean? Like, you see it. I'll never forget. A lot of people don't know. The Central Park, like where it is in New York, it used to be a black neighborhood. And they just displaced them to put a park there that everyone just loves. You And is, there's so many different stories in this country about black people or minorities or Native Americans or just marginalized communities just being moved because, you know, we want to put a park there or we want to make our lives better or, oh, now we want to, we want to live here now, y'all. Um, and, I, and, you know, on the surface level, yeah, a lot of communities look better. Harlem looks better. I don't have to walk, you know, blocks for a bank. There are banks on every corner, right? I don't have to walk blocks for a nice, you know, meal. There, there are restaurants and stuff on every corner. You know, no more abandoned housing, no more food deserts. Yeah, it has more developments, more restaurants, not just check casting places either. We actually have banks. But let's peel this back. This development isn't for the people that's held down the community for decades. The development is not for development's sake. You know, they talk about, I read something that talked about there has to be the right balance of a racial, uh, a right balance of minorities in order to, in order for, um, a neighborhood to be prime for development as far as gentrification is concerned, because there's still areas or pockets within New York city that may not be close to a subway train line that haven't been touched in years and still need to be developed, but it's not because it's not, um, it's not sexy enough for developers to come in. So this is not development for development's sake. This is not development because stuff needs to be developed and people shouldn't live in food deserts and places without, you know, basic amenities that everyone deserves. This is not that. This is development for the sake of bringing in this creative class or bringing in people that can afford, you know, these very, very high priced developments. And, you know, so just, you know, I was talking, this is, and I said before, this just is not, this is not just in black neighborhoods. Spanish Harlem is not the same. I read an article about there were in Spanish Harlem, if you, like, I love the vibe of Spanish Harlem with the music and the food. Um, And I read an article where you have the new residents that move in, the amount of times they call 311 due to the noise. And, and they call 311 so people can turn off the music. And I also read that in D.C., in Chinatown, you know, you have drummers on the street and the amount of people who call because they're too loud. Why in the hell do you move in a neighborhood and try to change it? Like, okay, let's keep going. Um, <laughs> so just in Oakland alone. Between 2012 and 2017, the median rents in Oakland increased by 36.2% to over $2,300 for a one-bedroom apartment. Gentrification is driven by those who stand to make a profit from this process. Landlords, developers, and other businesses. It's supported by government policies and processes, such as those that favor private development of market rate housing without considering the need for affordable homes. And so, you know, there's definitely a question of who supports gentrification. 
because we know who profits off of it, right? The government and private industry profits off off of it. But who supports it? And I know in Harlem, I've read that it was initially public funds that that kind of that um, spurred gentrification in Harlem. And then private developers eventually got on. But what we need to do, and this will be, I'm just going to say it now, although I'm going to say it again in the Raising the Bar segment, is elected officials, and we see with the D.C. filing, with them suing the D.C. government, elected officials are condoning this, sometimes initiating this. People that we vote into office. So I don't want to lose sight of that. Um and I think, you know, up next we're going to talk about, and so I did promise to talk about some of the legal issues, especially disparate impact and proving intent uh, for anti-discriminat- anti-discriminatory law. So we're going to talk about that and why there may just be limits to this case that would preclude them from seeing any real justice. So before we get to the interview, I just wanted to really quickly just go over a couple of legal um, issues or just explain a couple of legal um, arguments that we talked about. So one of them would be um, intentional discrimination. And when winning on an intentional discrimination case, which um, I believe that the plaintiffs in this case actually allege intentional discrimination, they would have to prove that the government and D.C. government um, acted with intent to discriminate, which is a very, very, um, I would say, you know, hard thing to do. Because when you're dealing with a facially neutral policy, and what that means is the policy, just by reading it on its face, is neutral. And, you know, the policy in question is the creative DC action agenda. And within the, you know, just by reading the words, it doesn't say anything about, you know, discriminating against any one particular group. And so it's facially neutral. Um, So when dealing with that, when dealing with the facially neutral policy, the courts just can't invalidate the action because it has discriminatory effects. Um, The the actional policy has to be motivated by an intention to discriminate. Now, the case, you know, the filing, the care filing does, you know, outline many steps in which they believe the D.C. government, you know, intended to discriminate against. um, minority communities in D.C. But like I said, it's a very, I think, hard thing to prove. Fortunately, there is another theory called the disparate impact theory, which doesn't require intent. Um, It focuses on the consequences of a policy as opposed to the intent of government action. Um, And so there's a three-part test to that. First, you know, does the policy disproportionately affect members of a group, which in this case it does, Um, Can the city demonstrate the existence of substantial legitimate justification? I I think the city could um, demonstrate a substantial legitimate justification. And they would argue that, you know, it spurs the economy and it's good, you know, for businesses. and, and, And those are all, you know, legitimate justifications for the policy. Now, the third part of that is, is there an alternative that would achieve the same legitimate objective? Um, you know, that's that's questionable. But, yeah, that those are two different ways um, that, you know, two different methods that can be used to um, prove that, you know, this policy has discriminated against, you know, black people in D.C., 
you know, I think it's also important to say that the Supreme Court almost ruled on whether or not minorities had to prove that not only had they suffered discriminatory effects, but also that discrimination was intentional with dealing with housing policies. Unfortunately, both of of those cases were settled before arguments began before the Supreme Court. So, you know, that's where we are as far as legally. Um, If you have any questions, please hit me up, um, www.rtbpodcast.com. Can't give you any specific advice, but, you know, we could definitely talk, talk more about the the legal theories in this case. So up next, we will have uh, the interview, which I think is in a very exciting um, interview. And in, I'm, I'm going to try as much as possible to interview people that were or have been impacted or who are very close to the legal issues at hand. I think that um, if, if I can't do anything in this podcast, but just to raise the voice and amplify the voice of people that have been impacted, I think is something that I definitely will continue to do. So stay tuned. So welcome back to the podcast. I'm extremely, extremely excited to introduce my two, I actually have two guests, um, and I'm going to have a lot of guests on this topic, but whatever. Um, so my first two guests are my dad and my stepmom, Ben and Desiree. So say hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I know, you know, when... Deciding to do this on gentrification, I definitely wanted to reach out to my family since we're all from Harlem and we've seen Harlem change. And so if you can just tell us what was Harlem like, because I know both of you were born in Harlem in the uh, 50s and 60s. That's all we're going to say in the 50s and 60s. And so I would love to know, you know, what was Harlem like then? Because I think a lot of people think it was just like this ghetto. It was just Mm -hmm. uh, this horrible place. Um, But I would love to hear from you as far as what was Harlem like in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Okay, for me, I loved Harlem. I loved growing up there. I had no idea growing up in Harlem would have such an impact on me. That, that, that it had the, the impact that it has on me today. Growing up in Harlem was a community. It was family. The people that I grew up with, I am still family with. Um, I had no idea I was poor growing up in Harlem. Um, my mom, my parents were divorced when I was about five or six. My mom raised us. My dad was always involved. The community was always involved. Um, I didn't, like I said, didn't realize that we didn't have what our white counterparts had. Uh, My mom worked hard to give us the things that we wanted, made sure we had the things that we needed. Uh, My friends, we were playing outside from sunrise to sunset with no care in the world as to what was happening um, didn't feel as if I was in danger in any way, didn't feel that I had to watch over my shoulders in any way. It was just a wonderful family community atmosphere growing up in Harlem for me. Honey? Um, growing up in Harlem was, was awesome. Um, like she said, some of us came up in the 50s and 60s. But, uh, 
what I remember mostly was was um, community, you know, togetherness. Um, I always remember this instance when I, we used to go walk to uh, 110th Street. I grew up on 117th Street and 8th Avenue. So we walked to 110th Street to the swimming pool. And I must have been maybe eight, nine years old, and a bunch of us, about five or six guys, and we're walking back and we're cussing. And this lady who did not know us heard us cussing. Uh-huh. And she slapped the sugar honey iced tea out of me, took me to my mother, uh-huh. who beat me again. Uh-huh. You know, and that's where I was raised. Um, the block I grew up in, yeah, there was a lot of drugs, there was a lot of all this, but as little kids, they took care of us. They made sure that we didn't get hooked on it. Um, they gave block parties. I mean, awesome block parties. Um, they gave bus outings. We'd all get on the bus. It was free. Uh-huh. You know, and um, like she, uh, like my wife said, um, we didn't go to Toys R Us. We made our toys. You know, we made scooters out of skates. Yeah. And it was, that was the fun part, to uh-huh. make it yourself. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, we didn't buy a bicycle. We pieced it together. I mean, but this is what all of us did together. Right. So we were always outside having fun. You know, uh-huh. um, your mother had, when the street lamps came on, you better have your butt upstairs. So, I mean, it, it, it was, Harlem was a community. We had movie theaters. See, people don't realize that back in the 60s and 70s, we had movie theaters, we had arcades, we had Apollo. Um, we had, uh, we had a lot of stuff, you know, in Harlem. I mean, we had, and the biggest thing was like, most of the people that grew up in my neighborhood were from the South, mostly from South Carolina. So, we grew up with a Southern culture, even though you were you were born and raised in Harlem. You know, um, you grew up with Southern culture because that's where our parents came from. Mm-hmm. So there was some restaurants all around us. You know, you had uh, Carolinas, you had uh, the Goat, the Silver Rail that sold the best chicken and wok, chicken and um, French fries, and then you had a place called Wells that actually started chicken and waffles. So Harlem was awesome. So I, when I, did oh, you? To, I'm sorry. Uh huh. I'm, I'm so sorry. I wanted to touch back on him saying how we, he made toys and we rebuilt toys to play with. We, I remember a game called Lodi's where we would draw uh, uh, numbers on the pavement with chalk and we would take uh, bottle, tops. bottle tops and um, poker chips, take together, gum, together. put them together, and we would shoot Lodi's. We played Lodi's. And, it's called Scully's also. Oh my gosh. And yeah. You know, and we would take cans. Shoot water. And shoot water from the fire hose. We did that hose. too. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was like, those were fun. Yeah. Fun, clean times. It really was. Um, so when did you notice a change? When did you notice a shift in Harlem? I noticed the shift probably in my 20s when um, I saw more and more white people moving into the communities. I'm not, and it wasn't a lot at that time, but in my 20s and 30s, I would turn around, I, and I wasn't living in Harlem at that time, but I would go back often because I still have friends and family that lived in Harlem, but I would turn around and I would see a couple of white people here, a couple of white folk there, and they were not nervous about being in Harlem. <laughs> let's um, talk about that let's talk about yeah. what do you mean by yeah. that and what okay. and, and what did that what did that confidence or that that mm-hmm. that confidence that um they seem very comfortable what did that say yes. to you what did that convey yes. to you that said to me that some that that's when that 
something was about to change um, because it was strange for me. Growing up, I didn't see white people come. Uh, correction, let me make a correction. I remember seeing white folk coming through Harlem on a bus, looking at us on a, on a, a tour bus, mm-hmm. looking at us as if we were animals in a cage, pointing, and there would be someone pointing and on the microphone describing. The, and I'm, I, I thought that was. I'm like, well, what, what, what are we? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. So that happened in my teen years and in my early twenties. In my late twenties, they started walking through Harlem. See, before they were protected on the a bus. tour bus. Yep. Now they're walking and strolling through Harlem. So that gave me an indication that something was about to change. Uh, the buildings that I regretfully didn't purchase. <laughs> in the early age, they started living in those buildings. So I'm like, okay, so now those buildings were no longer affordable for black folk to live in or purchase. So now white folk were living in here and purchasing it. So that said to me that my community was no longer yeah, and I, I want to just um, let people know that what we're, I think what Desi is referring to is in 1985, the, the city put um, over 100 brownstones up for auction. Mm-hmm. And there were some set aside for people who were in that particular district, but the, uh, but the, the, the brownstones sold for either somewhere between 2,000 and I believe like over 100,000 and they needed repairs. So they needed about 100,000 in repairs. But compared to what they would have cost had it been a private developer, like this was a steal. And so we saw that was kind of the first shift in home ownership in the makeup of Harlem. And it, it kind of just, you know, the, the, like I said, public investment was kind of the first investment that kind of led to gentrification in Harlem. And then after that, we saw private investors come in. So, um, Dad, do you want to talk about yeah, just when you yeah. noticed the shift? Well, I'll, first of all, I just want to say something about when you were talking about the buildings. Um, first of all, we we must take notice that um, at the time this happened, we had our first black mayor, which was Mayor Dinkins. Mm, that's a good point. Yes, he was. this is when... Um, they put in the Daily News, and I remember reading it as a young man. Um, it actually, they wanted, you could purchase one of the brownstones for a penny, but you had to have enough money to um, redo the building, you know. And um, Mayor Dinkins uh, kind of spearheaded that, which was awesome. Um, yeah, um, well, going back to something Desiree said about when did I notice about white people? Well, um, growing up in Harlem, I didn't know about segregation. I, I, you know, it was, I just didn't grasp that concept. But there was, because I lived on 117th Street, which there was a park, which there is a park called Morningside Park that goes from 110th to 123rd Street. And then it stretches, it's about three blocks wide. Um, when she was talking about white people coming to Harlem, like white people, uh, if you went downtown to say go to a movie theater on Broadway, um, you couldn't catch a cab. It wouldn't go past 110th Street. It would not go past. Yellow cabs, that's all we had back then. You didn't have to be gypsy cabs. But it would not go past 110th Street. They, mm-hmm. they just didn't want to go. Um, and as I grew up in Harlem, we, uh, you know, our 
woods was Morningside Park. So if you go over there today and look at Morningside Park, it looks nothing like when I grew up. It was nothing but rocks and dirt. I mean, they rebuilt it totally. And um, if you went to the top of the park, it was called Morningside Drive. And that's where Columbia University is. And when you got to the top of the park, they would have the gates closed. You couldn't come. Black people could not go into that section of Manhattan. I believe that's part of Harlem, really. But um, they couldn't go in that part of Manhattan. And we used to look at it as a game when the police would chase us back down. We thought it was funny. But, you know, years now, I, I do realize it was actually segregation. Um, and that's, you know, like, we had a few white people in Harlem, but they were... They were rooted in Harlem. We had Mr. Sam's Candy Store, who was owned by a white man, Mr. Sam. And we had a laundromat, and we had a couple of grocery stores, you know, that were owned by white people. But they were accepted because they were there since the 50s. But uh, for new pe- white people to move into the neighborhood, and we had a few. We had, I still remember the first white lady. I knew she lived in my mother's building. Um, she was married to a black man, you know. And so it. I, I noticed it starting to change, actually, when um, I'd say, okay, we had a rash of drugs in the 70s. You know, it was, Harlem was the big drug capital for New York in a way. Um, and then you had the 80s, you had the crack era. But uh, slowly but surely, they started phasing drugs out. You know, I mean, people started getting hard time. People started going inside instead of being outside. And as they went inside, the buildings that were condemned, all of a sudden you would see them boarded up for years and then all of a sudden you would see renovations coming. And I think that's when I noticed. So why did you think that was happening? Did you ever think, did you think, oh, this is the New York City government doing this? Did you think that, oh, they're they're doing this for us, for the black people that have been here for years? Like, why did you think gentrification was, ha- like, why did you think that development was happening? My opinion is, I, and I learned this, later on after leaving was that was a way trying to root us out of Harlem. My opinion. Um, cause a, a, it, a lot of us couldn't afford to do what needed to be done at that time for these buildings and to become homeowners. Just couldn't afford to do that. We didn't have the resources, didn't have the assets. Um... On my end, um, you know, what, what just jumped into my head was, uh, like, uh, your grandmother, my mom, um, there was only two apartments I lived in in the six years I've been born. And that was on 117th Street between 8th and Manhattan. Then we moved on 118th Street, right around the corner, between Manhattan and Morningstar. Um You know, my mom lived to be 92. She passed away in August of last year. And she stayed in the same apartment for over 40 years. And, um, you know... I remember that we went to about four what they call supers. And, you know, I remember back in the day when the super would come up there as soon as you wanted something fixed would be done. But then they started getting, um, as time went on and white people started moving in, they started getting lax about fixing things in the apartment. And that just goes to um, goes to say now my, my daughter's in that apartment. And, I mean, it, we had to go through hell and high water in order for her to get that apartment, even though that was it was it was given to her by her grandmother. And until this day, they're still giving her problems about the, um, that apartment. I mean, um, they send eviction notices. They send all kinds of threatening letters. And just because they want her out, because of what she pays, if they get her out, they would fix all the, the violations that's in that apartment and triple the rent. 
So, and, and she couldn't afford that. Neither could I. So that's the push that I see them doing. They're, they're making it so um, we can't afford to live there anymore. And it, it, it doesn't make sense because what they would want me to pay for what I, I live in Texas now, for what I pay in Texas for a four-bedroom or three-bedroom house, I couldn't even afford a, a studio in, in, in the home. So, so I how mean, you, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sweetheart. So my question is, because I would say that we've been blessed in life, right? And I know some people in my family who I don't understand how they live in New York. They don't make, you know, as much money as it's needed to live in New York. I think I read recently that you would need to make about $30 an hour to uh-huh. to afford the average rent, the average nationwide, right? Nationwide rent, right? And I know a lot of people that don't make $30 an hour and they still live in Harlem and they just make it work, right? How does uh-huh. it feel that, you know, you all like you all are 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 living well and you can take advantage of uh-huh. say some of the development, but you see that you have family members who can't and so it's kind of like you understand the dichotomy. How does that feel? Can you talk about that? Oh, man. Because there is, like, when, when, I, when I think about the development and I, when I go back home and I'm able to take advantage of these bars, part of me feels guilty almost, right? Because while I'm sitting outside... Yes. That I see a lot of people, and I and I shouldn't feel guilty. It's just uh-huh. it's just such a weird space to be in, right? Because here I am sitting in this place that's been abandoned all of my life. Like right. it was a popular bar that was a gas station for a long time, and then it was just nothing for a long time. Now it's just popular bar that my some of my some of the people in my family can take advantage of when some of them can't, and it's kind of like. I get it. I, you know, anyone that can take advantage of the development, that's cool. But we have to understand that this is not development for development's sake. And I said it earlier in the, the episode. My issue with gentrification is that one, neighborhoods are deemed worthy enough to be developed. And so what we've seen is a neighborhood has to be close to public transit. It has to have all of these features in order for developers to even care about it. Because there's still pockets of the Bronx that may it's not as accessible to public transportation. And so, nah, we're not going to develop those parts. And so those people are still living in food deserts. Those people are still dealing with check cash in places. But these other parts that may look you know, sexy and valuable to this creative class that we, we want to move in, let's develop this part. But me, as a person who I've worked hard in my life, I may be able, I may have a little bit more disposable income, so I'm able to kind of take advantage of it. I still feel there's still like this angst and anxiety. Right. And, and guilt was one of the words that I was struggling with actually admitting um, that I did feel guilt about. And it's almost like how do I give back to the community that had given so much to me, who made me who I am? Um, and you made a point about when they develop these areas, are they developing these areas for us, the black community, or are they making it easy or accessible to non-black folk with, who have the resources? making it easy for them to take advantage of those developed communities, making it easy for them to get to those developed communities. 
you know, when I go back home, you know, um, I feel, yeah, I feel some guilt. I feel some anger, too, you know. Mm -hmm. And the, mm -hmm. the reason I feel mm -hmm. the anger is because I, I'm angry because we didn't do this. Yeah. You know, why, why didn't we have a hand in doing this? Why is it that new um, building on 117th Street in Manhattan Avenue, 80% uh, black? Or why they didn't do this while we were there? You know, and, you know, it, it makes, it, it's, it's, it's kind of upsetting to um, walk down the street now and I see all these restaurants that are opening that, are you know, um, are really... I feel as though should have been owned by black people, you know. So, I mean, I'm not taking away from the people who came and developed. I'm, I'm just saying that I wish we were more involved with the regentrification of Harlem. I don't feel as though we are. Now, there, don't, get, don't get me wrong. There are some people who are trying, and, um, you know, I, I, I kind of stay in touch. And you're one of them by, you know, this podcast. I really appreciate, you know, you getting this out to the community and letting people, you know, I can say vent on some of the frustrations about growing up there and what it is today. So do you think that, where do you see Harlem in 10 years? Do you think it's at the point of no return and it'll be completely different in 10 years? Yes, I do. Um, I can walk down the street, street now and I can hear five or six different languages. Um, I, I, 10 years from now, um, you're going to have a few hanger-ons, you know, who actually grew up there, lived there. And um, I just see, I see this as the start. You know, I don't think there's no end to it. Um, some of the buildings, uh, the landlords are seeing money signs now. They're seeing what they can make if they get the old folk out or if they die and how they can triple the rent and how they can just become richer. And I don't think it's it's, it's even about culture or, or none of that now. It's all about the dollar bill. So that's what it looks like for me. Now, for me, I, 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 when Ben said I see a few hanger-ons, I, I, I see people staying. Um, I see a lot of black folk. They're not leaving. They are Harlem, New York, through and through. They, they're not going anywhere. And I see their financial situations improving is, re is one of the reasons why I think they're staying. Uh, I, don't, I don't see a lot of us leaving, Good. which is great. But I see a lot of white folk coming in, but I don't see black folk leaving. No, Harlem is Harlem. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to uplift your vision <laughs> and I hope that it, I hope that that stays there. I'm not sure I am that confident. You know, you uh -huh. see, um, Georgetown here in DC used to be a black neighborhood and now it's completely uh -huh. white. Um, really? yeah, I, I just, there are a lot of instances where, you know, you've seen it, but I, I don't know. Um, I think uh -huh. if, as, as long as we continue with the development that we're seeing and I, I, I honestly don't know. And I, and I uh -huh. really, as, as, as long as we can uplift the voice of those and there are a lot of, and we're going to talk about in the Raging uh -huh. Bar segment, how people can combat this and how people across the nation, I, Harlem is definitely, I think further along than a lot of other areas. We're starting to see, I think Charlotte, North, I mean, Charleston, North Carolina. Um, I was talking to someone on Twitter, how that is the number one, I guess, in gentrifying areas Charleston is. So I don't know. I, 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 I think Harlem is at the point of no return, but I, I'm going to go with you, Desi, and I'm going to uh -huh. try to be optimistic. Um, uh -huh. 
So any other, I guess, um, lasting or parting words before we end this wonderful interview? Sweetheart? Well, I, I again, it's so funny that I have, and I'm hoping I'm not looking through rose-colored glasses so far as my city, my Harlem, my neighborhood, my community. But um, I'm thankful that I got a chance to be there to experience the childhood that I did. Um, I'm happy to see the change. Not, I'm not necessarily uh, okay with them trying to move us out, but I think we're fighters. The black community, I think we're fighters. And um, and it just is going to make us stronger. Um. The only thing that comes to my mind when you ask me as part of the rest of is I was blessed. I was truly blessed by being able to grow up there. Um, I know what that saying now, um, it takes a village to raise a child means. You know, because I, I actually lived that. Um, I can't say that today because you tell somebody this kid didn't want to kill you, but... Um, <laughs> I, I was truly blessed to grow up on the streets of Harlem. I mean, to be able to walk the streets of Harlem, to go to the, 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 the I mean, the, the support, the support you had. You didn't have one mother, you had a hundred mothers. You know, um, you didn't have one father, you had a hundred fathers. So, <coughs> excuse me, I feel blessed. That's, that's the only word that keeps coming to my mind, to be able to grow up there, because it taught me so much. It made me the person who I am today. You know, without growing up in Harlem, I don't think I would be the person I am today. Um, so, um, I hate, I know that's a strong word. I dislike what has happened as far as, um, it changing so much. I, I, I like the fact that it's changed to something better, but like Des said earlier, it doesn't, has it changed to something better for black folk. So again, I just say I feel blessed by growing up there. Well, thank you. And and you keep in mind that this is not just a black issue. You know, you have Spanish Harlem where I read an article where people are calling 311 about the loud music. And if you know, and Desi, you grew up in Spanish Harlem. Yes, that's ma'am. that's Spanish Harlem. <laughs> that is, yes, that yes, is what it is. You know, 20, yes. 30 years of people playing music and now you want to come in and, yes. and call the cops because they played the music. It's like, come on, really? Um, in Chinatown, there are, there's a huge, you know, Asian American push to keep Chinatown, Chinatown, you know what I mean? And, and that's another, you know, we're seeing this, it's, it's just not just black communities. There's a lot of minority communities where, you know, and I think what, what we're saying in Harlem was Harlem was home because it was the only home we were allowed to have. We weren't able to go past 110th. We weren't able to, to move as fluidly as, say, the white counterparts, white, white people in New York City, right? It was the, it, that's just what it was. And so we took pride in our neighborhood, right? It was comfortable for us because this is where we were allowed to be comfortable. We didn't really have the freedom to move about like a lot of, you know, other people in New York. And so that's why we took pride in it. That's why it was the community that we know. And this is why we have issues with it just being taken over. Like y'all didn't want to come above 110th, you know, years ago. Y'all want to be caught dead, you know, um, on the other side of Morningside Park. Y'all stayed up in Columbia University and let's not even get on all of these institutions, higher, uh, higher education taking over 
um, neighborhoods because Columbia yeah. is doing that in Harlem. Yale is doing that in Connecticut where they're really taking over neighborhoods. But we'll talk about that later. Um, but we, we took pride in it because it was the only place we were allowed to be. It was the only place in which we were allowed to express our culture. To li- You know what I mean? Like we had Father's Day tournaments. That is the reason why we took pride in it because y'all wouldn't let us be nowhere else. And so now that right. y'all want to just come and take it over. Yeah, we were angry. Yeah, we're upset. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to say that. Um, and thank y'all so much. Um, thank you. For just, yay, <laughs> for blessing me. Um, and um, I hope you all have a, the rest of wonderful day. A wonderful Thanks, rest of your day. No problem. Thank you. Okay. So on to my favorite segment, Raising the Bar. I don't know if you all realize how personal this issue is for me. Um, and just based on like a lot of personal things that I'm going through now, this is extremely purpose, like personal to me. So I will say, um, if you're currently fighting for your apartment, for your house, and you're currently being displaced or you're threatened to be displaced, and, 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 and it's your will to fight. I, I, I acknowledge or recognize that not everyone, you know, wants to wants to fight this battle. Uh, but if you want to fight, fight, fight for what's yours, fight for your neighborhood. Um, I definitely think that, you know, a lot of people have given up and, you know, I'm, I'm that's no judgment. It's just it is what it is. And um, I think there are a number there are a number of numerous grassroots organizations around the country dedicated to stopping displacement and to mitigate the impacts of gentrification. If you are aware of one, please donate. Um, Please, local organizations are usually aware of any community hearings that happen prior to development. You know, I think that's how they won, I believe, in one of the cases in D.C. was, you know, one of the steps that the city has to take when, you know, starting a new development is to study the impacts of the current neighborhood and you know th- you know citizens were able to fight that because the city didn't do its due diligence and studying the impact that the development would have on the current neighborhood um fight for investment without displacement fight for you know there are ways in which we can develop these areas for the people that live in them like i said during the interview that the reason why a lot of a lot of the reasons why you had pockets of black communities and you know we we had to form these bonds and you know the communities had rich in culture it's because we were not allowed to be anywhere else and so if you can fight for, if we we can fight for investment without displacement you know organize 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 you know one of the you know we talked about electoral power power in the first episode And I am a huge fan of another form of power, and that's people power. Um, You know, there are many different, um, I would say, methods to combat combat gentrification. One of those that I'm a fan of is community land trusts. And so under this model, you know, a nonprofit usually will, you know, they'll either buy the land or they'll steward the land and they have a very long lease and, you know, the nonprofit will determine the pricing for properties it rents or sells on the land. 
Um, and such trusts, there are trusts and they have, they, they have been proven to be effective. And I believe Philadelphia and Vermont. Now the cities usually don't like this because they, they lose their ability to repurpose uh, land for other uses. And it's usually an extremely long lease, like a 75 year lease. Um, so the cities don't like it because it's, you know, they deem it to be inflexible, but yeah, whatever. Um, and then a, a great organization that I came across was the Right to City Allowance, Alliance. I'm sorry, the Right to City Alliance. Um, and this, from their, their website, emerged in 2007 as a unified response to, to gentrification. And it called in a, in a call to halt the displacement of low-income people, people of color, marginalized LGBTQ communities, and youth of color from their historic urban area neighborhoods. And they have a great map on their website. And the map has, it's kind of a database of local organizations that are working on this issue. So it's the Right to City Alliance. Um, and, you know, like always, I will definitely do my best to either put on the website or put in the show notes, any other resources that I come across. Um, I definitely enjoyed this episode. I hope you did too. Um, Raising the Bar, we will, I'll release an episode every other Tuesday. Uh, so this should be released on July 31st and the other, the next one will be released 14 days after that. Um, again, hit us up on, we're on Instagram and Facebook at one RTB podcast. And then the website is www.rtbpodcast.com. Until next time, continue raising the bars for your communities. Have a good one.